Um, <clears throat> quick history lesson for you all before we, before we dive into the text. Um, I'd like to start by seeing how many of you are old like I am and how many of you are young. Um, can we put that first, that first guy up there? How many of you know who this is? Okay. Um, some of you either don't know who it is or you just didn't want to raise your hands. Okay. All right. So I, I'm, I, I don't know. Okay. Now, for, for real, if you know who this is, raise your hand. Some of, some of you don't? Oh, man. Wow, I thought this would be a generational thing, and it's not. Apparently, it's a sheltered person thing. Um, this, this, guy is, this guy's hilarious. This is a Looney Tune. This is, this is Marvin, right? Marvin the Martian. You all familiar with him? Okay, well, today I would like to talk about a Martian, um, which sounds funny in church, right? Um, we're going to talk about a Martian today for just a minute whenever we give our history lesson, but it's not going to be this guy. Um, but for some reason, whenever I thought of Martian, uh, my mind always just goes to this little guy, and I can still see him flying around in, uh, in the old Space Jam, the good Space Jam, um, flying around, you know, with his little whistle because he's the official at the basketball game. Um, some of you are like, you've lost me already, Jared. Well, it's okay. Um, we'll, get, we'll get back on track. Instead, I would like to talk about a different Martian. Can we put this guy up? Um, this guy's name is also Martian, spelled much different, um, much different. This guy's name is spelled M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Um, and the reason we're going to talk about this guy is because he did some things that were, um, in my opinion, very, very bad. Um, this guy was actually labeled as a heretic by the church in the second century. So I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. He was, um, he was renounced by the church um, in the second century. I think it was 144 AD that he was actually um, labeled as a heretic by the church. But the reason I want to talk about this guy is because of what he did. Um, but before we do, I just want to make sure that we understand um, that he, the way we understand the Bible... And what the Bible is was very different when he was, when he was around. Okay, the, the canon of Scripture, the, the, and we just had this discussion about what the canon is and what canon means. Um, I'm not talking about the big gun that shoots the giant balls across the things. I'm talking about uh, authoritative or inspired writings that we know as the canon of Scripture. Okay, um, so we have what we know as the canon of Scripture. We have 66 books in our Bible, and we just recognize this as Scripture. See, when Martian was around, oh, look at that, got his name in there even. Uh, when Martian was around, this hadn't been canonized yet. They hadn't formally put it together in one work. Now, there was a general agreement about what works were inspired and what were not, but Martian went against what the church at the time was saying were inspired books. See, what Martian was saying is the writings that were inspired consisted of only 10 or 11 writings from Paul and the Gospel of Luke. But even his, his version of Luke's gospel had everything that was remotely tied to the Old Testament stripped from it. He renounced the Old Testament and said, no, 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 Christianity is something that is completely different, which is true to a degree. But he said it's completely different. The Old Testament is no longer the law and the prophets. Those are no longer the Christian scriptures. Instead, Christian scriptures should be something totally unique, something totally different. And what he did was just said, you know what, anything that is Jewish, well, that belongs to those people over there, not Christians. Anything that is remotely tied to the nation of Israel, well, that's not Christian, that's, that's Jewish. And he separated those things out. Now, again, remember, at this point, the canon hadn't been formally agreed upon, but... It was largely agreed upon. The books that were seen as authoritative or inspired were largely agreed upon by the church. Um, but 
he basically said the Old Testament is irrelevant for us Christians because we're under a new covenant, not under the old. Which means, Genesis to Malachi, you can throw it away. At least that's, now understand, that's not what I'm saying. That's what Martian was saying. All right? And then his version of Luke, which if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know that there's Old Testament even being quoted in the Gospel of Luke. Well, that was stripped out because that was too Old Testament. That was too Jewish. So it was stripped out, and all he had was his revised version of Luke's Gospel. And then he had um, Paul's letters. He basically said, Christ is our Savior and Paul is his apostle. And that's it. Those were all the authoritative writings, according to Martian. Which is why the church said, well, no, 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 we're not going to get behind that teaching. That's just not true. Instead, what we have to see is that Christianity is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. I mean, the guy came to fulfill the Old Testament law, which is what we're going to see today. But see, in a lot of ways, this same teaching is going around today. Now, nobody, I, don't, I haven't met many people who are bold enough to say, well, we just don't think the Old Testament should even be a part of our Bible. I haven't met many people who are that bold. However, there are popular teachers today, and I promise I wouldn't mention his name, but there's one in particular who says we need to functionally unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Basically divorcing himself from everything that is in the Old Testament. How can you do that if you read the New Testament? I, I, it doesn't make sense to me. So I started thinking about that, and we could talk about other teachers who are doing this, but then I think what we really need to do is reflect on our own lives and say, have I functionally unhitched myself from the Old Testament? Because in many ways we have. We think, well, yeah, but that Old Testament law, that was for those people over there back then. It has nothing for me. We wouldn't say that. Most of us wouldn't say that anyway. But functionally, is that how we treat the Old Testament? Is that how we treat the first, what, 39 books of the Bible? See, I think a lot of us do, even if we do so unwittingly. We functionally divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. But the question then is, is that how we should look at the Old Testament? Should we view the Old Testament like Martian does? Or should we look at it as something that's significant, something that's weighty, something that has application and teaching for us right now, today, in the 21st century? And I would argue that it does. Um, but I think a better way of approaching this is, rather than just saying, well, I think it does... Let's see what Jesus has to say about it. So would you all stand with me? Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17 today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible like I always do. It says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So Jesus here begins to teach on his relation to the Old Testament. Um, begins to teach on his relation to the Old Testament and how that, should view, that, how that should change our view of the Old Testament or our view of righteousness. And what we find is that the, his view is radically different from that of his contemporaries in both extremes. 
It's radically different from both extremes whenever it comes to his contemporaries. See, it seems as if some were questioning, like, well, does the Old Testament even matter if you're the Messiah? If the Messiah has come and the kingdom has been, has been introduced here on earth, then does, does that mean that, like, the Old Testament is irrelevant now? The law is irre- irrelevant. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the case. But then there's the other extreme that was building up the law as if it was everything. Saying, we have to adhere to all of the law. And if we don't, well, then we can't get into the kingdom of heaven. We have to be these uh, righteous, religious people. We have, to, we have to be that kind of person. And Jesus renounces that view also. So what he's doing is he's taking a radically countercultural view to the law. And I would just like us to look and see his view. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, then I think we need to have his view of the Old Testament. I think we need to have his view of the law and the prophets. So that's what I would like to look at today. I want to see the way that Jesus teaches this countercultural view of the law. And the first thing he does is he teaches that the fulfillment of the law is found in him, not in superficial adherence. I know that's long, so I'm going to say that again. Jesus teaches that the fulfillment of the law is found in him, not in superficial adherence. Now, my hope is that this becomes increasingly clear over the next, uh, really, next week, but over the next couple weeks. But Jesus here, he states, and rather bluntly, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He just says, puts it right out there. I did not come to abolish the law. Now, this is a side note, so just stay with me for a moment. Because um, this isn't the main point of the text, but I do think it's worth at least noting. Um, Jesus here expresses that he came, right? He says, don't think I came. Um, and I thought this was interesting. I read several different scholars who seemed to think that this had some... some um, picture that Jesus understood his preeminence, like that he was before everything. Notice he says, I, can't, I did not come. He didn't say, I, not like we would say today. Like if we said, this is my purpose. I just said a whole lot of words with no real point. Okay, let's try this again. Y'all, y'all know that people make mistakes, right? All right, let's try this again. Jesus says, I didn't come for this reason, right? Don't think that I came for this reason. If we were going to state our purpose, we would probably say something like, I was born for this. Don't think I was born for that to happen. Jesus could have pointed all the way back to Bethlehem, but he doesn't. He points back to even before that, and he says, don't think I came for this reason. Jesus seems to be indicating that he recognizes that he was preexistent, that he was there before Bethlehem. But again, remember, that's not the main point. I do think that's worth pointing out, at least briefly. Jesus here does acknowledge, at least at some level, his pre-existence. But what Jesus is saying here is that I didn't come to abolish the law. But we need to at least, at least understand some of the terms that he's using, right? First, he refers to the law and the prophets. And then in the next verse, verse 18, he refers to simply the law. And what he's doing here is he's actually using these terms interchangeably. So what he's saying is the law and the prophets is the same as the law. Now, what are the law and the prophets? It's what we know as our Old Testament, Right? He's referring to the entirety of what was the inspired word of God, what was the authoritative scriptures for the Jewish people. Whenever he says law and prophets, he's not just talking about the Pentateuch, right? We can look at the first five books of the Bible and say, well, he's only talking about the law books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then he's talking about the prophets, which means he's probably talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That's not the case. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about what, what was written before, the authoritative Jewish text. And he says, don't think I came to abolish these authoritative Old Testament texts. 
So, since he's not coming to abolish, what does that mean? Well, the word abolish... In the Greek, it means to destroy or cast down or overthrow. Um, it was typically used, this word abolish was typically used to talk about the demolition of a house. So whenever they would tear down a home, they would say, I abolished that home. That was the idea that was being conveyed. When Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish this law. I didn't come to overthrow it or tear down the house. That's not what I came to do. He says, that's not the point. And if you think that's the point, then you've missed it. So Jesus, at some, at some point, he's, he's refuting he's refuting this idea that they have that he came to tear down all of the Old Testament structure. I came to just destroy all that. I came to tear it all down and overthrow it. But Jesus says, no, I didn't come to abolish or I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Instead, he says, I came to fulfill. Now, this is a fun one. I came to fulfill the law. What in the world does that mean? Um, and if you're asking that question, then you're asking something that has been debated by scholars for, well, I don't know, about 2,000 years now. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word fulfill, it's uh, another fun Greek word. I'm actually going to say this one. It's pleurosai. Pleurosai. It means to fulfill, to complete, or to fill up. And this one word can be understood several different ways. Whether it's he completed the law or he fulfilled the law, which kind of have similar meanings, but there's a little bit of a difference. But most are in agreement, and I would, I would argue the same, that this has, carries the idea of filling up. He came to fill up the Old Testament. Now, I'll explain what that means. It, it means that Jesus here, he's saying that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, and the one to whom the law and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, he's the one to whom they point. He says, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, they point to me. He says, they were the picture of what was to come. I am the substance. He says, I'm the reality of what the Old Testament was pointing us to. See, Paul, whenever he's talking about the law in the book of Galatians, he says in Galatians 3.24, he says, the law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. And what this, what this idea of being a guardian was is like a schoolmaster. Okay, it's one who it does carry some idea of discipline to make sure that people are staying on the right path, going in the right direction. But it also has this concept of teaching. And he says, Paul says that the Old Testament, that the law was there to teach us to keep us on track, going in the right direction. And what are we going towards? Towards Jesus. It says that we are being directed toward Jesus by the Old Testament, by the law and the prophets. So rather than thinking that the law has no place, Jesus here emphasizes the fact that the law isn't going anywhere, right? He says, don't think that any of it's going to pass away, at least not till heaven and earth pass away. See, we think about it like, well, Jesus came and whenever he died on the cross, the Old Testament's irrelevant now. I'm just going to follow the law of love. Y'all ever heard that before? Huh? Nobody wants to admit it? It's okay. But Jesus emphasizes the fact that the Old Testament is not going anywhere until heaven and earth pass away. And until then, he says, every single letter, every dot will see its fulfillment. All of it. He says in verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. One commentator said the law isn't going anywhere until the entire divine purpose prophesied in Scripture has taken place. And until then, not a single letter will fail. Not a single letter will fail. See, the law and these prophetic words, they see their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying everything that the Old Testament, everything that the law and the prophets was pointing you to, they point you to me. I'm the reason. I fill these things up. 
See, the people, they were looking at the Old Testament either as irrelevant or look at it at the other extreme. But Jesus says, no, I am the relevance of the Old Testament. I'm the reason for the Old Testament. They're pointing you to me. But see, that's just the first part of uh, this point, right? That the fulfillment of the law is found in Jesus. Then there's a second part of that. It's not found in superficial adherence. Um, This was the other extreme, though, right? So you have those who are saying the law doesn't matter. Then you have those who are just practicing superficial adherence to the law. And um, we'll come back to verse 19 in just a minute. But look with me at verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think at this point it would be a good idea just to remind you all who Matthew is primarily writing to. Um, Primarily a first century Jewish audience. Okay, And he's recording these words of Jesus saying that if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) The scribes and Pharisees, they were experts at knowing and keeping the law. That's what they did. I quoted this guy named John Stott last week, and I'll quote him again here in just a minute, but he wrote this. I think this is really good. He says, But surely someone will protest. The scribes and Pharisees were famous for their righteousness. Was not obedience to God's law the master passion of their lives? Did they not calculate that the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions? And did they not aspire to keeping them all? How then can Christian righteousness actually exceed Pharisaic righteousness? And how can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition for entering God's kingdom? Like, how does that work? How in the world is that even possible? Did you not hear that? They calculated 248 commandments that they had to keep and 365 prohibitions. Y'all, I can't keep one rule. We see Adam in the garden. He can't keep one rule either. You know, somebody tells me not to do something, I'm going to struggle not to do that thing. Am I the only one that's that way? I didn't figure. See, these guys were experts at knowing and keeping the law. 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. They made it their life's goal to know and keep the law. And Jesus says, unless Christian righteousness, Christian, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you're not getting into the kingdom. Can you hear how jarring this would be to these first century Jews? Like, We're hopeless. Jesus just came to preach and teach a standard of righteousness that we cannot accomplish. We might as well pack our bags and go home now because we're destined for hell. Jesus just dropped this bomb. So how in the world is that possible? And that's really the whole point. It's not possible. It's not possible for you or I at all. Asking how to be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee by keeping the law completely misses the point. Which is what Stott goes on to suggest. It completely misses the point. If we're asking, how can we actually like, physically keep the law better than the scribes and Pharisees? You can't. That's the point. See, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. Which means that if we are going to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we have to have the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only way to surpass it because Jesus had perfect righteousness. He's the only one who did it perfectly. So we must be found in Jesus, not in some superficial adherence to the law. And I love this, just for emphasis, when Jesus says that if your righteousness doesn't surpass the scribes and the Pharisees, he uses this this term here at the very end of this. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Actually, in the Greek, that's, that's a double negative. He says, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. 
If I was going to put this in our vernacular here in the Midwest, I'd say you ain't never getting in. It's not happening. Sorry, folks. Unless it surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and the only way that happens is you look to the one who filled up the Old Testament, who filled up the Law and the Prophets, and it's in Jesus that we can have that hope. So Jesus teaches the fulfillment of the law. True righteousness is found in him, not a superficial adherence. And I hope you hear how that was a countercultural view. You had both extremes that were saying, one, that doesn't matter, and then the other extreme that says, oh no, every bit of it, you have to keep it all or else you're not good enough. Jesus teaches this countercultural view. Second, Jesus teaches that the kingdom greatness is determined by submission to and transmission of the law. And understand what I mean whenever I say the law, I'm talking about God's word, okay? Um, So Jesus teaches that the kingdom greatness is determined by submission to and transmission of that law. Okay, verse 19, we'll back up here and we'll go to verse 19. It says, therefore, in other words, Jesus says, "Since, since I am the fulfillment of the law and I'm the one to who at all points, I'm what true righteousness looks like and the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away, since all of that's true... Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands. And what commands is he talking about? What commands is he talking about? Um, It seems that he's talking about the law and prophets, right? Those seem to be the only commands that are here. There don't seem to be any commands made by Jesus, any demands. Instead, he seems to be talking about the law and prophets. So one who breaks these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whenever he says break, this is the the Greek word luo. Okay, and this is a fun one because it's very popular. It's very common in the Bible. This word luo, it means to loosen or to untie. In other words, whoever loosens themselves from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets... up. Oh, did we just come back on? Cool. I like it. So, Luo, whoever, whoever loosens or unties themselves from one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, did Jesus just say that anyone who breaks one of these laws will not enter the kingdom of heaven? That's not what he said, is it? It's not what he said. Instead, what Jesus is dealing with here in verse 19 is not entry into the kingdom, but greatness in his kingdom. That's what he's dealing with in verse 19. He's not saying that if anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands can never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he says, because our righteousness isn't found on our own. Our righteousness has to be found in Jesus, right? So that's not what he says. Instead, he says greatness in the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom. That's what he's dealing with. This is a matter of magnitude, not admission. And notice that whenever he says they'll be called least, he's set in opposition to the one who will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the word great is a fun one. It's mega. Y'all, I want to be called mega in the kingdom of heaven. I think, I think that resonates with everybody, but especially men. Like, men, can you, just, can you just hear that? Like, I want to be mega. No? All right. Y'all are killing me. Mega in the kingdom of heaven. Great, huge, magnificent. I want to be big in the kingdom of heaven. And how do you do that? Well, no... Do and teach others to do likewise. That's what Jesus is saying here. Know and do the word. 
Start again, I said I would quote him again. He said, To disregard a least commandment in the law and either obedience or instruction is to demote oneself into a least subject of the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom belongs to those who are faithful in doing and teaching the whole moral law. As Spurgeon wrote, The peerage of Christ's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. Obedience. Now, I think it's important, again, to know what we're talking about whenever we're saying be obedient. What are we being obedient to? Again, I think this is important. See, what it points to here, um, a scholar named D.A. Carson, I think I've already quoted him also, but he, he points out that in this context, ranking in the kingdom turns on the degree of conformity to Jesus' teaching as that teaching fulfills the Old Testament revelation. It turns on our obedience to Jesus' teaching. If we want to be faithful, if we want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, how do we do it? Well, submit to and teach others to follow after Jesus' teachings, especially as it relates to the Old Testament. And this is consistent with the rest of Matthew. Later on, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 18, verse 4, he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves. You know what it takes in order to follow Jesus' teaching? It takes humility. We have to be willing to put our own wants, our own desires, our, ourselves aside and say, I'm going to follow my master. Whatever he says, whatever he teaches, I will do. And that's how greatness is determined in the kingdom of heaven. And here in verse 19 of chapter 5, Jesus ties greatness to submission to him. But I thought it was interesting that it was also tied to transmission of these teachings. Like he doesn't say, just, just do what I say and then you'll be called great. He says, whoever does and teaches others to do the same. If we're submitting to him, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be making disciples of all nations, right? That's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. You know what a disciple is? It's someone who attaches themselves to a teacher and does what they do. They learn from them. So if we're going to attach ourselves to a teacher named Jesus and we're going to learn from him and do what he says, then we're going to be making disciples also. It means we're going to be transmitting his teaching to those around us. So we need to be both, both obeying and transmitting Jesus' teachings. And Jesus says, that's how greatness is determined in my kingdom. Jesus teaches fulfillment of the laws found in him, not a superficial adherence, and greatness is determined by submission to and transmission of the law. Third, Jesus teaches that Christian righteousness is greater than cultural or religious righteousness. Now, we've already touched on this some with that first point, okay? There is some overlap there, I know that. But um, what I want us to look at is that, that this is just a little bit different. We have a greater righteousness. Uh, Look with me again at verse 20 where it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever get into, or you will never obtain, sorry, I can't read. You will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now this is important because Jesus doesn't say you can't ever, he doesn't say you can't ever obtain righteousness that is sufficient for entry into the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say that it can't be obtained. It's not his point. He says it can be obtained. He simply says that the only righteousness sufficient for the entry into the kingdom is perfect righteousness. Right? Even the scribes and the Pharisees, these experts at knowing and keeping the law, even these experts, they were sinners, right? I hope that's not a new concept to most of you all. They had fallen short of God's glory. I'm pretty sure it says that in Romans 3, right? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Okay. That means that these guys had fallen short of God's glory. Every single person, including these religious leaders, has sinned, which means, assuming that we know that the Bible and we can trust the Bible, 
That means that these guys had broken the law. And James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Which means that these scribes and Pharisees broke the entirety of the law. They broke it all. Every bit of it. This means that even the righteousness of these religious men is not even close. Not even close. So what Jesus is doing is pointing us to something that's greater than strict religious adherence. He's pointing us to a righteousness that, while it's not ours, can be credited to us. He's pointing us to a greater righteousness. A righteousness that comes through the one who fills up the Old Testament. Jesus says he's the one that fills it up or fulfills the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is the point of the book. I don't care where you're reading. I mean, you're reading in Genesis. The point is Jesus. It's pointing us to him. If you're reading Ezekiel, it's pointing you to Jesus. In one way or another, he's the one that fills up the law and the prophets. He's the substance. He's the one that actually accomplishes the Old Testament. And our righteousness can only be good enough if it's his righteousness given to us through faith. That's the only way it's going to be sufficient. See, I would argue that our culture, even our church culture, will try to tell us what righteousness looks like. And oftentimes it's not the standard that Jesus sets up. Um, But see, Jesus says, I'm what true righteousness looks like. See, in our church culture, we want to look at the law of love and we redefine what love means on our own. And we say that it looks like tolerance or acceptance or a whole host of other things while Jesus says, here's what love and kindness and compassion and true righteousness looks like. And if you want to know what it looks like, look at me. I'm saying Jesus is saying that. I'm, I'm certainly not that picture. I hope you all got that. Jesus says, I am the one that looks like true righteousness. And now that's not to say that if we trust in Jesus, suddenly we can break every law at every point. It doesn't matter because, you know, we're saved by grace and not by works. So the way I live really doesn't make any difference at all. It doesn't matter at all. Oh, no. No, that's not the point at all either. See, we're saved by, we are, in fact, saved by grace and not by works. We're given this new covenant, this new covenant in Jesus' blood where he comes and says, I paid the price for every debt you have. You are free absolutely free. But when we are following the one who does the work for us, we will be like our teacher. We'll be like our master. We'll follow after him, like our savior. But even then, we need to understand that our righteousness does not depend on our actions, but on the one who did the actions that we couldn't do on our own. Our righteousness has to depend on Jesus, on his righteousness. And only whenever it depends on Jesus and his righteousness can we say that we have a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the fulfillment of the law is found in him, not in superficial adherence. Kingdom greatness is being determined by submission to and transmission of the law. And the Christian righteousness is greater than either cultural or religious righteousness. See, we need to strive to understand the Old Testament. We need to strive to know and understand the Old Testament. Why? So that we can have some superficial adherence to the law? No, that's not the point. Sure, we're, under, we're not under the Old Covenant. No, we're not under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. Sure, that's all true. But the Old, you know what the Old Covenant does? It points us to Jesus. 
It teaches us who he is and what he came for. It gives us a deeper understanding of the one that we follow, which will in turn help us to follow him more faithfully. If you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, learn the Old Testament. See what it's pointing us towards. See how Jesus fills up the Old Testament. Look, I don't want us to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. Instead, I want us to cling to the truth of Scripture. And I'm talking about all of Scripture. All 66 books of the Bible. I don't want to be content knowing Matthew to Revelation. I want to know Genesis to Revelation. I want us to cling to the truth of Scripture, understanding that we've been given a deeper and a more complete picture of what God has accomplished through history. So we should dive into the Old Testament. But even at that point, there are some, even some who may be well-intentioned, who have said, well, I don't, want to divorce our, I, don't want to, I don't want us to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. And what they've done is they've built up an impossible hurdle for people to overcome. I understand that they had good intentions. Look, we need to have a very, very clear approach. While the Old Testament is important, it's important because it's pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus. It has a very practical teaching for us. But at the same time, I don't want to build up a wall that nobody can overcome to get to Jesus. Because if we do, then we're just like the scribes and the Pharisees who are saying, keep these 248 commands, these 365 prohibitions. And even then, you're probably not going to be good enough. Instead, I can tell you on the authority of God's word that all your work, all your efforts, all your striving will lead you to disappointment if that's all you trust in on the day of judgment. You're going to be disappointed. See, Jesus doesn't say, come and follow this list of rules that are found in the Old Testament. He doesn't say, pray this prayer, join a church. All of those things might be good things. But that's not what he says to do. He says, very simply, very plainly, come to me, take up your cross, follow me. That's what we're told to do. Why? Well, because Jesus has already come and he's already filled up the law. He's already accomplished what you and I can't accomplish. He's already done that very thing. And then whenever we pick up our cross and we follow after him, yeah, we're going to look like him. That's what we want. We want to be more like our master. See, a lot of people are like, well, Jesus, Jesus came, he called me for this reason or that reason. The truth is Jesus called you because he loves you and he wants you. Not because you can accomplish something for him, not for any of those reasons, simply because he desires you to be near to you, to know you, to love you, and for you to be close to him and glorify him. And in his grace, he's made a way for that to be possible. See, the truth of the Bible is, because of our sin, we cannot be near to God. We have separated ourselves from him based off of our own desires. We wanted something else, but that's exactly why Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. That's why he gave us these pictures. That's why he shows us what he's like. I mean, just think about the pictures of the Old Testament. The Passover, the sacrificial lamb, the sin offerings, even the flood, this passing through water. And the more we study the Old Testament, the more we know who Jesus is, the more we'll see all of it's pointing to him. Our job, what do we need to do then? I hate to oversimplify, well, it's, but it's, it's this. Trust in Jesus. Take up your cross. Follow after him. And trust him wherever he leads. Let's pray together. Father, I want to I start by thanking you for your word. Um, and not just the New Testament, um, but all of it. From Genesis to Revelation. 
Um, Lord, I know that in my own life I've watched the Old Testament change me just as much as the New Testament because it's shown me who you really are and what you came for. And not only that, it's shown me how short I come of that, that standard. Um, so, Lord, I want to thank you for that Old Testament, for those 30-plus books that we recognize as Scripture. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to have a proper view of what it's teaching, that it's all pointing us to your Son, Jesus. Lord, and that we might submit to the entirety of your Word, not just when it's convenient or it's what we like, but the entirety of it because it's what you've said. And we're your servants. So, Father, help us to submit um, Lord, but I, I pray that it wouldn't just come to uh, blind adherence. Instead, we would recognize that our righteousness falls, falls drastically short if we're just counting on our own. So, Father, instead, I pray that you would help us to rely on Christ in everything, recognizing that we are sinners desperately in need of your grace. So, Lord, help us, we pray. Father, and I pray that as we recognize that truth, that we have fallen short of your glory, and that it's only by coming to the one who, fill, who fulfills, who fills up the law and the prophets, only by coming to him can we be saved, Lord. And as we realize that, I pray that you would help us to, to walk in step with the Spirit, to follow more closely behind Jesus, um, for our lives to be transformed, as, as Paul writes. So, Father, help us, we pray, to look more like Jesus as we read and understand and know your word. So, Lord, guide us and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.